Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. The single most important thing, well, two two single most important things. You need to eat enough food and then you eat, need to eat enough protein. And when they've done meta-analyses and meta-regressions, it looks like even if you're not doing any kind of resistance training, you can see significant improvements in, in muscle mass and strength if you get your protein up to around one and a half grams per kilo of, of body weight. So even just eating enough protein, regardless of anything else, seems to help with body composition. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health, and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better. Today, I am bringing you a conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood, and we are talking all about muscle strength, quality of our muscle tissue, nutrition, sleep, stress, all how it relates to age-related decline and its prevention. Dr. Tommy Wood is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington, where he studies brain injury and how lifestyle choices and environmental factors contribute to brain health, cognitive function, and chronic disease over the arc of an individual's life. He received his bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He's also published dozens of scientific papers and lectured all over the world about brain health, metabolism, physical activity, and human performance, and also spent more than a decade working as a performance consultant to professional athletes in multiple sports, including several Olympians and world champions. As you might guess, this is a very juicy conversation. So we start off talking about muscle strength, uh, how this can prevent cognitive decline or delayed onset of dementia. And we talk a lot about some of the principles of muscle, what it does for us, how it helps the brain. We talk about nutrition in terms of how we can manipulate nutrition for better body composition and better cognition over the arc of someone's life. We talk about age-related cognitive decline, what are some of the things that are happening in the brain, why this happens. We have a special sort of cutout, if you will, for our perimenopausal and menopausal women in terms of what is happening in the female brain. We talk about systemic inflammation, we talk about homocysteine, we talk about omega-3s, and we go into supplementation that is going to be important for reducing our overall risk of cardiovascular disease and bringing down systemic inflammation as a whole. 
We talk about improving brain function as a, or thinking about brain performance as a function of demands. So of course, I talked to him about my love of languages and my desire to be a polyglot. And if this is at all helping with my pursuits and keeping my brain healthy over the arc of my life. And then we move into his specialty, which is head injuries. So I wanted to really make sure that we talk about head injuries because really all of us are susceptible to injuries at any time. You can get into a car accident, you can fall down the stairs, you can be hit by a bike, etc. So we talk about the mechanism of injury, how that changes brain function, the metabolic demands in the brain, how that changes after a traumatic brain injury, whether it's a mild concussion, moderate or marked, acute and chronic injury uh, considerations. So what do you need to do in the first 24 to 72 hours, the first couple of weeks, and then beyond that? So we talk about different strategies like cooling and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We talk about sleep. We talk about exercise. We talk about supplementation specific to head injuries as well. This is going to be such a valuable conversation. One of my favorite conversations today, Dr. Wood really can talk the talk and he gets really nerdy here. This would be what I would call maybe a medium medium roast, if you will, if it's light roast, medium roast, dark roast, medium to dark roast in terms of content, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tommy Wood. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break so you can hear a word from our sponsors. I've been using Levels for about three months now, and it has been a game changer for me in understanding how food affects my health. When I started as a Levels member, I thought I understood my metabolic health pretty well. Turns out, like most people, I had no idea how some foods were affecting me until I got my hands on my own unique response to foods. And after using Levels, One of the biggest changes that I've made is that I've had to cut down on avocados because I found that my metabolism doesn't actually respond that well to them. And poor glucose control is associated with a number of chronic conditions. It's not just diabetes, ladies, but it's Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, stroke. It affects your day-to-day energy levels, your ability to even control your weight and sexual function. So tracking your glucose can help you learn more about what you should and shouldn't be eating based on your own unique physiology. Right now, Levels is offering my listeners an additional two free months off of the Levels annual membership when you use my link. That's levels.link forward slash better, L-E-V-E-L-S dot L-I-N-K forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Now, I don't know how long this offer is going to last. So if you've been interested in learning more about your metabolic health and your glucose response to foods, now is the time to get started. It is almost impossible to get all of your minerals from food alone, as much as we would like it to be so. And many of us are experiencing chronic health issues like fatigue, muscle cramping, hair loss, anxiety, and imbalances with our adrenals, our hormones, and our blood sugar. I have been using and loving Beam Minerals plant-based humic and fulvic supplements recently. They are a full-spectrum mineral supplement, meaning that they give you everything that you need to replenish your mineral and electrolyte stores all in one go. Humic is a powerful system detoxifier of which I know I need to keep my detoxification in check as well as healthy hormone metabolism. Humic has been used in many settings for removing mold toxins, heavy metals, and pesticides from our environment. And they taste like water, so you can kind of down them in seconds every single morning. 
If you want to try Beam Minerals for yourself, head over to beamminerals.com forward slash better for 20% off of the entire store. Once again, that's beamminerals.com, B-E-A-M-M-I-N-E-R-A-L-S.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R, and you'll get 20% off your entire cart. All right, Dr. Tommy Wood, I am just... So pleased to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you today. I, we are going to be talking all about the different verticals around cognition and how it changes as we age. And one of the things that I like to talk a lot about on the show, particularly for women, so the demographic that listens to the show is primarily a perimenopausal or a menopausal woman who's trying to sort of you know, navigate that, that time period in her life. And I think, you know, the, the general cohort of a woman in perimenopause and menopause, the messaging around muscles mm. has drastically changed from, and I, you know, I'm 45, I'm going to be 46 next month. Like I went from being like a cardio bunny, like always, you know, and I was a step, I was a step aerobics teacher. <laughs> like that's how I paid for my professional schooling. It's like high, low, I'm totally dating myself, but high, low and tie bow and, you know, and, and step. But we've really sort of seen a shift towards the positive in recent years around going from being a cardio bunny to almost like a, we'll call it like a muscle mommy, right? So like (laughs) women with muscle. So my first question for you with that big preamble is how can we think about muscle, both lean muscle tissue and muscular strength in both the prevention of or maybe the, the delayed onset of cognitive decline? There's a number of ways to tackle to tackle this, but I think the, the first thing to say is that I think it's fantastic that there's been this return or this increase in interest in strength training, resistance training in women uh, of all ages. And I actually, I, I just got a, mes- a message from a, a very good friend of mine yesterday who said that after I'd suggested this to her a long time ago, she was finally really enjoying hitting the weight room and uh, like really liked kicking it to the patriarchy because you know everybody underestimated the the girl with the the sparkly fingernails who then walked into the into and the deadlifted gym and started, her yeah. double double her body weight yeah it's yeah. just about amazing I, lo- I love it it's fantastic yeah. so mm-hmm. so the fact that this is becoming uh, a message that's out there I think is is brilliant so when you think about muscle tissue there are several parts of it that that play a role in terms of the health of the brain when we look at exercise interventions broadly, it seems that any physical activity helps with cognitive function. And the minimum effective dose, regardless of the type you do, is, is, is kind of around standard government guidelines. 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week seems to be the minimum dose that increases cognitive function to a, like a, a meaningful uh, amount that you could like detect and would, would actually make a difference. There are a few meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials that actually suggest that resistance training, particularly for things like executive function, which is decision-making, resistance training may be better than aerobic training in terms of improving cognitive function. Now, of course, both are important for, for, di- for different reasons, but resistance training in particular seems to uh, affect some of the 
the white matter pathway. So white matter kind of sits under the gray matter of your wrinkly out, outer cortex. If you sort of like imagine a brain, it's kind of wrinkled on the outside, it's gray matter on the outside. Under that is white matter, and white matter is uh, responsible for fast connections between different areas of the brain and then down to the body. And resistance training in particular seems to benefit those white matter tracts and interestingly, particularly affects the ones that seem to be affected with age and uh, risk of cognitive decline and dementia. There's also some indirect effects that muscle mass can have. So there are several studies going back decades that show that the more muscle you have and the more you move it, the better your regulation of, of blood sugar in particular. So your, your muscles are your main sink for, for blood sugar. And we know that having persistently elevated blood sugar is really not very good for the brain or any any part of the body. So having muscle and it being more active, that those things are both important for blood sugar control. And we also know that when you exercise your muscles, you release a whole host of factors uh, from the muscles as well as from other tissues like the liver. So if they're released from the muscles, we call them myokines. If they're released from other organs, some people call them exokines. And these then support various aspects of brain function. And one that people talk about a lot is called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. However, that there are dozens and probably several that we don't even know about yet. We're always discovering new exokines and myokines that seem to have beneficial effects. So there's this direct neuromuscular stimulus. And when we stimulate our muscles, we're directly stimulating the brain because we're formulating those connections, learning you know, learning the paths associated with trying to maximize maximize our, our strength. And then there's also these indirect effects that, that are going to be beneficial in terms of blood sugar control and releasing all these other factors that, that can support brain health. I also, um, I also think that depending on the type of exercise, which we, which I would like to get into, I, I feel like not all exercise is created equal. Like there is a certain cognitive like I have, there's some exercises where I have to be 100% present for -hmm. what I'm doing. So for example, if I'm doing a low intensity, steady state bike ride, you know, I am also doing my Duolingo. I'm also like, I'm just on my phone. I'm doing other things, right. Versus if I'm doing sprints, there's one program that I use on my, on my stationary bike where it's eight seconds, all out sprinting, 12 second recovery. And you do that 30 times, 45 times or 60 times, depending on the program you choose. I can't do, I can't do dueling. I can't do anything else other than focus. And the same is true for weight training. So there's, as the weight gets progressively heavier, or even, you know, if it's, it's the appropriate weight for what I'm trying to achieve, sometimes I have to close my eyes and actually get rid of the visual stimulus of the people around me and sort of who's walking by and just get into my muscle in order, you know, I have to, bring my mind, if you will, into my muscle in order to perform that movement properly and not to have any compensatory, you know, movement strategy. So I I almost feel like it's in some ways, it's a, it's a cognitive stimulus in, insofar as I have to focus exactly on what I'm doing. I mean, and, and so my, my sort of preframe on that is can you talk a, a little bit about am i am i wrong there or maybe you can redirect me are all exercises created equal because i know that there's some people who will just go for walks which is great i'm not i love walking that's wonderful 
And if it's the only thing that you do, I think that you're missing the potential upside to some of the things that you're talking about with the, with the white matter connectivity and some of these things that we lose as we age, the release of myokines, or maybe to the same degree, if you're just walking versus, you know, pushing yourself in the way that I was just describing. It, it, it's a great question. And part of it is trying to, trying to separate out what's good versus is there a better approach and in general any physical activity that that's more than what you're currently doing is great for your brain i think we would both uh, agree on that yes however in terms of the the process you're describing i'm not sure we have any really good data to suggest that this is creating its own cognitive stimulus but there are some or now several studies that compare exercises that have a given amount of uh, difficulty or you know cardiovascular uh, difficulty, right? So you're going to get your heart rate up a, a certain amount as, as some measure of intensity. And if you compare a unimodal form of exercise, and this is generally in the sort of aerobic exercise sphere, but if you compare a unimodal form of exercise, so you're sat on a stationary bike or you're running on a treadmill, compared to a multimodal or what they sometimes call open skill movement, which requires reactions, uh, coordination, even it, even though they challenge the cardiovascular system the same amount, the latter is seems to be better for cognitive function as well as releasing more BDNF. So there was a recent study that came out where they had individuals running laps on a track and they did this in a in a crossover design, and so they were their own controls. And in one, they're just running laps on the track. And in the other one, they put obst obstacles on the track. So there was cones for them to zig in and out of, things for them to jump under, crawl under, jump over. And even though the intensity was the same, in when, when they added that sort of coordination component, they saw more, in, more release of BDNF, VEGF, IGF-1, so some of, these, some of these myokines. Some people have suggested that part of this is because more muscles are being activated, right? If you're running on a track, you're you're using fewer of your total uh, muscles in your body than if you're like having to jump and crawl over things, right? So that's maybe part of it. But it does seem that these complex mo motor or coordination-based tasks that come with physical activity may provide additional benefit to the brain. That being said, when we talk about structures of the brain that are improved with, say, resistance training, these studies are often done in, in, in your target population, so maybe peri or postmenopausal women, or maybe maybe slightly later, there are some studies in individuals in their 60s and 70s, and even doing resistance training with weight machines in the gym, which obviously you know the path is dictated for you. You you know it's a very low skill movement. Even those show benefit. So I think there's there is there does seem to be some additional benefit from coordination or sort of those skill based sports or movements and or activities where you're having to react to another person so like a ball sport so badminton's been looked at dancing seems to be one of the best interventions because you've got the physical activity component hmm. you've got a social component you've got a skill-based component and coordination so those seem to be sort of like extra beneficial to the brain but those other sort of unimodal activities also provide their own benefit 
Maybe that's why there's been a surgence of, so, you know, you talk about the treadmill or the stationary bike versus biking outside in nature where the pavement is uneven and you have to make sure you're not getting hit by a car. Or you know, if you're walking, you actually see there's like a depth perception where you're sort of seeing the environment, you know, approach and pass yeah. you uh, again with an uneven surface, let's say. Um, what I've seen at least in the sort of machine realm is that we have those treadmills, but then you're starting to see, I guess they, they would be curved treadmills where they're trying to replicate maybe a bit of uneven surface and activation of muscles that would be uh, potentially easier activated in, in the wild, I guess is the, is the, uh, way I might categorize that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about kind of diving a little bit deeper with muscle. I'd like to talk about the quality of muscle tissue. And the reason why I say that is an individual who just because you have more muscle doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthier. And and I'll quantify that by saying like, if you're a larger person, let's say just by default, you're going to have more muscle because you're just a larger individual. So talk a little bit about the importance of the not just having muscle tissue, but the quality of the tissue. And we can, we'll talk a little bit about how we might think about evaluating the quality of our muscle tissue as well. There's been a, a few studies that have, have, have come out recently that, that have started to, or to force us to think about this, this question in, in greater detail. So historically, there was a, a storyline that muscle, regardless of, how you gain that muscle and uh, i would categorize two broad ways of gaining it either you are doing specific exercises that are you know creating adaptation in that muscle tissue that result in those muscles getting bigger say with lifting weights or there's just the process of being in a a caloric surplus over time your but your body size increases and some of that is is muscle mass those two types of muscle previously we're just assumed to be the same, right? Muscle is muscle, regardless of how you got it. And it was thought to be protective. And there was, and it is protective up to, up to a point. So there's been this idea of the quote unquote obesity paradox, which is that compared to people who are uh, normal weight or underweight by the BMI, by BMI which is a pretty terrible measure of, of health. But that was what people looked at you know, those who were either overweight or obese tended to live longer. And some of that, based on how the analyses were done, is attributed to muscle mass. So we know that if you have more muscle mass, you have less risk of cardiovascular disease, you're more likely to survive cancers. You know, it's certainly protective broadly. However, more recently, there have been some studies looking at muscle mass and and, and other health outcomes in larger populations. So there was a study that came out from the UK Biobank where they have half a million people and they've done DEXA scans, they've looked at body composition and muscle mass. And this was actually particularly in men that they saw this, but I think it's still 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 relevant, was that those who had high muscle mass, of the highest amounts of muscle mass, actually had higher degree higher amounts of heart disease and were more more likely to die earlier. However, in the same study, they looked at grip strength and the and grip strength, you know, the stronger you were, the better, right? And so there's this disconnect between how, how much muscle you have and how, how strong you are that's affecting mortality. Because in general, we think if you have more muscle, you're stronger. But in the general population, most people who have a lot of muscle mass have, more, have a lot of muscle mass just because they're, they're, 
they're bigger bodied people, like you said, not because they're in the gym lifting weights. And so we dug into this into a, a paper that, that I recently published with a bunch of colleagues where we looked at cognitive function and we had measures of body composition. So these individuals had DEXA scans. We looked at blood tests, you know, various nutrient things are associated with cognitive function. And then we had leg strength was it was in the data set. And this is individuals, men and women in their in their 60s. And what we saw was that muscle mass itself was actually a very bad predictor of cognitive function. It didn't predict it at all. If anything, we saw a similar signal that those who had very high muscle mass had worse cognitive function. I think that's related to overall body composition and health just associated with 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 being in a, in a larger body. And then when we instead looked at strength, strength was very predictive of, of cognitive function, as you'd expect. So the stronger people's legs were, the, the, the better their cognitive function after adjusting for physical activity and other health metrics and things like that. And how was strength and, measured? Was it one rep max? Like what was the, what was the measure for strength? It was an isokinetic leg extension. So this is, a, this is a machine where you sit in the gym. It's like a, you know, people are probably familiar with a leg extension machine. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you essentially apply as much force as you can and it's isokinetic. So however hard you push, the machine pushes back so that you're constantly moving the legs at the, at the same speed. So this was, you know, how much force can you generate with your quadriceps? And a lot of other studies use grip strength in these big population studies. But one of the reasons why I picked this particular cohort of it's that the NHANES National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data set in the US was because they had leg strength. And that's, you know, it's a bigger set of muscles. It's probably more directly related to, to, to physical activity and broader strength. Um, and then uh, the, the final thing we did was we sort of estimated strength relative to body size to kind of make it fair, right? And again, we saw that that was really, really predictive of cognitive function. So how strong are you relative to the amount of muscle you have relative to, to your body size? And so that's what I think most people should be aiming for is is how can you increase your strength relative to the, the size that you are and that means that anybody can improve their their health and strength regardless of their starting point and and still hopefully see cognitive benefits and that's what's really important i just want to say something really quickly about grip strength it is very predictive of longevity but what i have seen unfortunately is sort of a misinterpretation of that where mm. people are starting at like just training their it's like training your <laughs> hands and uh-huh. it, 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 it's a bit it's a bit misguided insofar as usually when someone has strong grip it's because they are doing pull-ups or push-ups or they're you know they're generally lifting things in their daily life which just contributes to forearm you know the, the forearm flexors and extensors and your ability to sort of you know dead hang let's say for a, a long period of time but the what I have seen is a bit of a we'll say misguided interpretation where people are buying like grip strength devices where they're like little squeezy things and you're just trying to you're just trying to build out the grip and that's not that's not exactly right I just wanted I wondered if you could comment on that just briefly uh, no, I, I completely agree. When, when people put together these large population data sets, right? You, if, you, if you're going to measure strength in half a million people, it's got to be something quick and easy to do. And the easiest way to do that is with, with a hand dynamometer, right? You can quickly measure grip strength. You can do it in a couple of minutes. That, it's much harder to do leg strength or, you know, how much can you deadlift or squat? Like nobody can do that or nobody's done that at that kind of scale. So you're right. Grip strength 
is a good predictor, but that's just because it's associated with other measures of strength and and and, and muscle mass. So yeah, I, I've also seen the same thing. Like grip strength is associated with, with longevity, so I'm just going to train my grip. And there's nothing wrong with training your grip. You should do it. I train my grip because I it's important for the the sport that I do. But the best training for your grip and everything else is probably just like a deadlift, right? You're going to train your grip totally. as well as a yeah. whole bunch of other muscles that are probably going to be more important. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. So we're on the same page with that because I'm like, what is happening? Why are people, I've, I've seen advertisements for, it's silly. Okay. So in terms of, so your study, you were looking at blood markers, leg strength, this iso, uh, quadricep or knee extension machine. Are there other ways that we can evaluate? So if we're not part of, you know, your study, let's say, are there yeah. other ways that we might evaluate? evaluate the quality of our muscle tissue so strength would be one of them is it like mitochondrial density i don't know if you can really easily measure that or you know insulin sensitivity like you know amount of satellites like what are some of the ways that we might the lay person let's say if we're looking at blood markers or any other like you know functional strength tests what are some ways that we might evaluate the quality of our muscle tissue yeah in reality like most of the, most even the things that you mentioned are, are not something that, that that most people can measure, right? You can't. Right. You're not going to get a muscle biopsy and measure your your satellite cells. Although right, right. probably the the best because we're working on some 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 other studies to try and help people with this actually, and and one of the best markers of of muscle quality is in, intermediate type two muscle fibers, which you can only measure if you do a muscle biopsy. Hmm. Uh, you also can't measure mitochondrial function, so. I think some things are potentially uh, important. So you men- me- mentioned overall insulin sensitivity. I think your muscle quality is directly related to your insulin sensitivity and glucose regulation. So HbA1c, fasting blood sugar, fasting insulin or C-peptide, basic lipids like a triglyceride to HDL ratio can can be helpful in 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 some populations. Mm-hmm. So so that's so, you know some basic things. What we're working on and we don't yet ha- have it fully published and figured out yet or validated, is essentially a simple predictor of muscle quality based on a few simple blood tests. And we've, we've developed it in a large population, and we're just in, in the process of validating it, and then, and then we'll publish it. In, in women, the important markers seem to be things like CRP, so not having high levels of inflammation. Al- um, albumin uh, is important. Uh, creatinine is important. In general, people think that Creatinine is bad because they use it as a marker of kidney function, but actually creatinine is one of the best markers we have of total muscle mass. And then you can you can figure out the relative contributions of kidney function versus muscle mass by looking at creatinine versus something else called cystatin C. So there's things like this. We're, we're working on it. It's going to be much simpler. You could just like put in your your uh, we'll make a calculator eventually, but it's probably a year or year or two out. Well, that um, is super exciting. Gosh, I can't wait for that. But before before then, I think just the final thing is probably well, what's your muscle quality relative to your body size is just going to be how do you perform at body weight exercises? How you know how are you good body weight lunges or squats or pull ups or push ups? I think if you know where you are right now and you progress in those measures, you know, regardless of where you start, then you know that your your muscle quality and strength relative to your body weight or body size it is improving. So those are just like really simple things that, that anybody can do. So we can start with that and then we'll wait 
a year for you to publish your next piece. And then I'll make sure that we, we'll have you back on the show and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. You mentioned BMI and I, I, I did want to stop here for a moment because I generally think that for most individuals, at least you know, my, one of the big missions of the show is to get women lifting, to help them figure out their hormones and sort of lifestyle modifications, nutrition, et cetera. And of course, women are culturally and otherwise just exquisitely sensitive to the number on the scale. And I've often said on the show, you know, it's, you know, when we're thinking about weight loss, it's not, it's not the, like, you don't want to lose muscle weight. You don't want to lose organ weight. You don't lose bone weight. You want to lose adipose tissue if that's the goal. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find with BMI is it doesn't actually mat like BMI doesn't even take into account. So if you put on, let's say, I don't know, five pounds of muscle and you've been training for, I don't know, six months or something, you're arguably a much healthier person than you were, you know, six months ago, but your BMI is going to knock you because it's just a total number. They're just looking for weight, right? They're just looking for an increase or decrease in weight. I've heard you talk about the fat-free mass index, and I wondered if you might just expand on that because for the women who are listening, so my BMI, I did this little experiment just uh, prior to having you on, and I went on to just like an online calculator, and my BMI is 21.8, which puts me in sort of the normal... Mm-hmm. You know, normal category. I did my FFI, 18.2, and then fantastic. normalized. So the normalized FFMI was 19, which puts me in their excellent category, yeah. right? So I went from like normal to excellent. So I wondered if you might just parse, uh, you might just talk about the differences between those two and why they're, and why they're important. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about BMI recently and, and several health related bodies around the world have started to essentially jettison BMI because it's just a terrible predictor of of health as for the reasons that you state it doesn't say what your mass is made up or as the body mass index it, it, it assumes that all mass is equal in terms of our health when we absolutely know it isn't and muscle mass and bone mass are just the critical components particularly if you want to live a long and and, and, and healthy life. So the FFMI is the fat-free mass index. It's essentially calculated the same as a BMI, but what you do is you just remove body fat to start with. You just ignore it because I think in reality, we can do that most of the time if, we've, if we're focusing on, on muscle tissue. And the, there are several ways to do it. You can obviously get, you can get a DEXA scan, like bioimpedance, where you sort of like measure the resistance of the body. Like you, some, some people you can stand on those scales or hold those electrodes and it kind of estimates how much, how much body fat you have. And nowadays for a single point measure, the bioimpedance measures that they're pretty good. Like they're probably, they're close enough for you to estimate roughly what your FFMI is. And, or you can also, you know, there are even images online where it's kind of like, this is what people look like at certain body fat percentages. And you can say, yeah, that kind of looks like me. And then you can just remove that from your, from your weight and then calculate your FFMI. When we've looked at FFMI and say mortality risk in large population data sets, which I've done a, a couple of times, the, the lowest risk for, for women seems to be somewhere starting around an FFMI of 17. And, you know, 
the real benefit it seems to be sort of like 17 to maybe 19 or 20 like that's that's the real sweet spot below 14 is where risk of mortality really increases and that's where you you've probably got frank sarcopenia so you've got muscle loss bone loss that's Dan associated opinion. with that. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a hot relates to a whole host of, of, of chronic conditions so i think putting the the um putting the bmi uh, completely aside if you have some way to track your body composition over time uh, you know a, a dexa or an mri is is gold standard but that's you know tricky for people to do uh, a lot so even just you know looking in a mirror oh, there are there are also now some some apps that are pretty good where you can just like take standardized pictures of yourself and it sort of estimates body fat i think that's where you're know, focusing on moving the ffmi needle with resistance training or other exercise like that's where you're, you're going to see uh, the most bang for your buck. And so that, so that 14 is sort of like the, for women, this is like the, where we're starting to see maybe moving into maybe path, like pathologically low levels of, of, of muscle mass. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then do you have a similar, just to be complete, there are, you know, we have lots of women that, that, that listen to this, but they also sh- certainly have men in their lives that they love. Do yeah. we have like, do we have the data for men? So it's 14 on the low end, but the sweet spot you said for women is between 17 and 19. What yeah. is the, what is the homologue for, for men? So for men, the, the sort of the minimum is is seventeen. That's where risk starts to increase, and then the the sweet spot seems to be somewhere sort of nineteen to twenty one or twenty two. Okay. What I will what I will say is that any anything above that in the population, sort of in general population data set. So if you have an FFMI above twenty two, or you know maybe twenty three, twenty four as a man, or twenty one, twenty two as a woman, that's associated with very large. BMIs and large waist circumferences. So these these are not people who've generated a bunch of muscle mass in the gym. This is just from you know a, a long period of time in, in a caloric surplus, and some of that is muscle tissue. So what I can't say is that you know. So I, I give you kind of that that magic range where I think people should try to aim for. If you're above that, I don't think that's necessarily better, but I also don't think it's worse. We, the problem is we just don't have those data we don't have long-term follow-up in thousands of people who have high ffmis in the setting of low body fat percentages because you know that's kind of been a that that body composition has been a focus of their of their you know health and habits there just aren't those meant that that many people like that in those data sets so that becomes a bit of a gray area is whether being above that is good or bad so my ffmi is somewhere between 24 and 25 there's nobody like me in those data sets. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Honestly, I don't. I think it's not a bad thing, but there just aren't good data about that, around that. Hmm. Let's talk about nutrition. How can we use nutrition? You know, we've been talking about muscle and the importance of developing lean muscle mass. We talk about resistance training, cardiovascular training. How can we manipulate nutrition? you know, for better, for better body composition, right. To have, you know, that ideal FFMI that we've been talking about, but also for, also for cognition as well. Are there any general principles that you typically adhere by? Are there, and we can, we can move into supplements certainly, Mm -hmm. but I want to talk maybe about whole foods first and then see if there's, see if we can dive into uh, a little bit more of the supplement realm in a bit. For, for, for muscle mass, the, the single most important Thing, well, two two single most important things. You need to eat enough food 
and then you eat, need to eat enough protein. And when they've done meta-analyses and meta-regressions, it looks like even if you're not doing any kind of resistance training, you can see significant improvements in, in muscle mass and strength if you get your protein up to around one and a half grams per kilo of, of body weight. So even just eating enough protein, regardless of anything else, seems to help with body composition. So that's about 0. 0.7 the, grams-ish per pound? Yeah. Am I doing that correction properly? Yeah, somewhere, yeah. yeah around there. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so somewhere, I think most people should aim for sort of um, like point, yeah, point six to point seven up to point eight. That's probably where grams per pound. Most of the research is done in grams per kilo, and then you kind of have to like back calculate. Yeah, and then you have to yeah, North American it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is a, a real synergy between resistance training or strength training and protein intake. Uh, and again, the sort of if you're going to give an, an optimal average amount for the average person, it is about the same. You know somewhat around that 0.7 0.8 grams grams per pound but you see a much bigger benefit if you add resistance training on top which i I think we're not surprised by in cases where you're in a very significant caloric deficit for whatever reason then i think increasing that slightly is probably you could could provide some additional benefit but that's that's sort of like a a fairly niche uh, area you may get some preservation of muscle mass if you're in a significant caloric deficit but actually the most important thing to protect your muscle mass when you're in a caloric deficit is resi- is resistance training. So you keep providing stimulus to those muscles, even if you've dramatically reduced your caloric intake for whatever, for whatever reason. There are a whole number of nutrients that I think will uh, support this process. And they are then maybe what starts to tie nutrition back to, to the brain uh, as well. So we know that you'll see improved uh, body composition and strength or, or response to, to training if you have adequate vitamin D status, if you have adequate omega-3 status. Other things like iron and magnesium uh, become important. Um, and those are the same same for the, for, for the brain, uh, absolutely. When you think about long-term brain health, there are several randomized controlled trials to, that have sort of tried to figure out how different nutrients interact. And so two of the most important ones, again, are omega-3s and how they interact with B vitamin status, uh, particularly sort of measured in terms of how high your homocysteine level is. And historically, people have published trials that have said, oh, you know, we thought that omega-3s were going to be like the magic thing for your brain and they were going to prevent dementia and and cure all this, uh, you know, cure all our, our brain ills. And the omega-3 fatty acids, the long-chain ones that you get from seafood, are incredibly important for the brain. But the problem is that in order for them to function and get into the brain where you want them, you need a good insulin sensitivity, you need adequate B vitamin status. So if you have low homocysteine and high omega-3s, that's the, the optimal state. If one or, or other of those is is not good, so you have high homocysteine, then your omega-3s don't get where you want them to go. And if you have low omega-3s but good B vitamin status or low homocysteine, then you don't have enough omega-3s to kind of get into the brain. So they interact, and there are several studies that have shown that. And then again, iron status is really important, very relevant to to women and cognitive function, as is is vitamin D. So those are probably the, the main things that I'd focus on. And you know where where can we get those foods? Where we can get where can we get those from food? So 
Seafood, obviously a critical source for long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. If you don't eat seafood, then you can supplement, but you can also, if you, if you don't want to have any kind of you know, animal products in your diet, then you can, there are like algal forms of DHA that, that you can supplement with. B vitamins. Are uh, they the same though? Are they the same? I think that they're, they're going to be, cl- they're going to be close enough. I, yeah? they're, it's okay. not the same if you get alpha linolenic acid, which is the short form precursor that you can get from like nuts and seeds and things. And, and often foods will be sold as high in omega-3 because they get ALA from nuts and seeds and how you convert that to the long chain omega-3s, DHA and EPA, which is what you really want for the brain and for vascular health, is very different from person to person. So the the algal forms that you can supplement with that have the long chain omega-3s, I think they're fine. But getting the precursor from nuts and seeds isn't isn't going to necessarily be the same thing. Although some people seem to do fine with that, but it, it depends on genetics and a whole host of other things. Yeah, it depends on... Yeah, I guess like polymorphisms or your ability to convert. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that you've, I'm so happy that we're here because I think that we're at this particular topic because I think um, for so, again, I was saying before, women very exquisitely sensitive to weight. And I think one of the traditional uh, sort of strategies forever uh, in terms of weight loss has been uh, caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. Um, I cannot tell you how many women you know, that I've either counseled or cared for that were consuming like 1100 calories, 1200 calories, and they had been doing yeah. so for, you know, decades. And so when you tell them to eat, you know, 15 times their body, you know, like 15 times their body weight, they just about run out the door. Like they just mm-hmm. can't, you know, that's such, there's such a, the cognitive dissonance between what I'm telling them and having, telling them that they are, you know, probably lacking in substrate, protein deficient, mineral deficient, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of growing muscle, I think is is so important, not to mention the metabolic adaptations that happen when you're in a caloric deficit for that period of time, like even fitness competitors, bikini competitors, wellness, whatever figure, like there's an on season and an off season, like they're lean for a certain amount of time you know, just to get on stage and do the photo shoots and whatever, and then they eat afterwards, right? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little, let's, let's, let's double click a little bit on, on omega-3s. Um, y- you know, you said something that sort of triggered a memory. There's a couple of individuals online that talk about how omega-3s are rancid and they're bad for you and they're terrible for you. And for the record, I don't agree. I mean, certainly the supplement industry can be a little bit of the wild, wild west. Like I, I get it. You can buy something from Costco and maybe that's not the same as, you know, maybe a thorn or pure encapsulations or something where there's a lot of R&D and sort of independent testing along the way. But I wanted you to speak a little bit. You mentioned methylation and homocysteine. I would love for you to speak a little bit more about that insofar as you know, when we think about, uh, you know, someone reaching midlife and, and thinking about, you know, the second half of their life, whether they're male, female, whatever, we know the cardiovascular disease, still the number one killer by far for men and women. It's not cancer. It's not, it's, it's, it's CVD, maybe cerebrovascular disease coming after that. Talk a little bit about why it's important for us to keep our homocysteine levels low and the the role that you know you mentioned b vitamins i assume you're talking primarily about six and 12 but we can sort of round out that discussion b vitamins and omega-3s and how those in how those work to reduce potentially homocysteine levels in in the body 
there are two parts to to the homocysteine story. It's a nice general marker of 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 methylation, and methylation is essentially this process where you move carbons around, and you do it for a whole bunch of stuff, either for certain biochemical processes to turn genes on and off. It's just it's one of the ways that the body kind of directs metabolism or the function of a cell is through methylation. So uh, in order for methylation to work, you need adequate substrate or methyl groups, methyl groups, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And in general, these come from and are recycled through the use of, of certain B vitamins, although they require certain B vitamins. B6 is an important one. Several of the several of the trials that have lowered homocysteine, however, have focused on B12 and folate, which is B9. And the, you know some of the studies that have shown improved cognitive function and slowing of brain atrophy just used B12 and folate, plus or minus B6. The final one that that becomes important in in some people, but I don't think you need to figure out if that's you or not. You just need to make sure that you consume enough of it. That that really solves the problem is riboflavin, which is B2. Mm. And that's because some polymorphisms in you know, so genetic mutations that are normal and lots of people have them, or most people probably have at least one, they affect the methylation system because they affect how the enzyme binds to a, a proton or energy carrier called FADH2. FADH2 is, or FAD, which it comes from is made primarily from riboflavin. So you can overcome those issues by just making sure you eat enough riboflavin. And I'm, I just mean like the recommended daily allowance, a couple of milligrams a day. So like no, no massive super doses or anything like that. You just need to make sure you're getting enough. Um, and so those four are the things that, that I would focus on, but there are other potential nutrients that support the system as well. So, so choline, um, uh, is really important. That's, that's often a, that's, that's part of the, the methylation system. Creatine can be really important because the production of creatine in the body is one of the most methyl intensive processes in, in the body. And so you can sort of offload some of that burden by getting adequate creatine in your diet. And just so and then, we're, just so we can give people actionable items here, so the creatine yeah. typically after a workout, I pop in about five grams into my protein shake or whatever. So if somebody's thinking about and that, but I've been doing that sort of forever. So if someone's thinking of, I don't know if loading is the right word, but if someone's like, oh, actually, I'm not doing that, is just five grams daily kind of the way that we think about it? Would you do twenty grams for a week and then just kind of taper it down to like how would you how do you think about creatine supplementation? Yeah, so hi- historically people did a loading dose so they'd do like 20 grams for a week or two and then they'd come down to, to five grams sort of chronically and if you take a lower or if you take a loading dose for say a week you can more rapidly increase creatine in body stores so like in the brain for instance however most people don't really need to do that because you just want long-term creatine intake rather than having to load anything there was a, a recent two-year randomized control study in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women where they supplemented with 10 grams of creatine a day and, uh, and you know, with a, with a resistance training. So it was, it was placebo or creatine and then a resistance training intervention. And those who took creatine and did resistance training, they had some improvements in um, bone, like bone strength parameters in, in, in certain bones. So I think that five grams is great. 
10 grams could could also be great, but somewhere in, in that range, just as a daily dose, it is fine. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. The Apollo wearable was developed by neuroscientists and physicians for less stress, better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. Using the Apollo wearable gives you the same physical and mental benefits of mindful practices like breathwork and meditation, like improved focus and concentration, balanced emotions, reduced feelings of stress and anxiety, and more restful sleep. And this is great news for someone like me who struggles on a regular basis to meditate. And Apollo is unlike other fitness and health wearables because it doesn't just track your health biometrics, it actively improves them by strengthening your nervous system. Apollo wearable users experienced up to 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety on average, up to 19% more time in deep sleep, 11% increase in HRV on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. I personally wear it to sleep every single night and have been doing so over the last several months. And I too am happy to report that I have noticed better HRV or heart rate variability and my deep sleep is off the charts. Excellent. So if you want to experience some of these benefits as well, head on over to apolloneuro.com forward slash better. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout to get $50 off at checkout. And this may be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) Do we, you know, as we age, one of the things that, you know, I often I'm looking at literature around anabolic resistance of the muscle. This is why we need to, this is why protein, you know, you mentioned more, you know, enough calories and more protein. It's the only macro that really changes, like our requirements really change as we age. Do we see the same with creatine? Like, do we also have a resistance to creatine potentially in the same way that we might see some of this anabolic resistance that happens in muscle tissue as we move into menopause or andropause? I don't think so. The The main signal that you see from the literature, so say in related to cognitive function and, and creatine supplementation, both acutely and chronically, is associated with improvements in cognitive function. Mm-hmm. And it seems that the benefit increases as you get older. So when they've done meta-analyses of creatine supplementation in randomized controlled trials and cognitive function, there's more of a benefit seen in older individuals. So as far as I know, that there's there's not like a, a resistance. And you may actually benefit more as, you know, sort of other other systems or you know, particularly so say if if you're not focusing on methylation and B vitamin status, which probably most older ind- individuals are not, and homocysteine is probably creeping up over time, then perhaps that's where you, you, you start to be able to get more benefit from from supplements like creatine. So I don't think there's a resistance to that, as far as I know. So five to 10 grams seems to be an appropriate dose, or would you, would yes. you lean high, would you lean sort of on the, on the upper end of that on the 10 gram? I would, I would, I know that people who, who've run those, stu- that run those studies recommend 10. You could be so, and, it, and it's perfectly safe. They've done several year long studies in older individuals in their seventies, taking high doses, like 20 grams a day with like no side effects. So it's, it's, it's so interesting. There doesn't seem to be any side effects with creatine. That's one of the, no. th- you know, it's so interesting. Anyway, sorry, I started to interrupt you. It's just, it's one of those compounds where 
You know, you usually see like an area under the, like you have too much vitamin D, you know, you have yeah. to, you can always, you can sort of overdo it, you know, with the fat soluble vitamins for sure. But it's, it's interesting that creatine doesn't seem to have, or at least there's been no identified upper limit. It's worth, I, I think part of that is because these dose ranges, say like five to, to 20 grams, they are achievable through regular diet alone. Most people probably won't, but if you happen to be a fan of sardines, which I am, they're a great source of, if you get the whole sardines, they're a great source of calcium, they're a great source of omega-3 fatty acids, and they're also a fabulous source of creatine. There's One tin of sardines has like four to five grams of creatine in it. So, wow, I didn't know that. That's so awesome. you right. So if you eat two or three tins of sardines, or say if you ate, you know, two or three pounds of salmon or beef, like you can get several grams of creatine just just from the diet. So I think one of the reasons why it's so safe is that it's it's something that you could easily get if you worked on it, right? If you if you ate a lot of if you ate a lot of fish or meat, you could actually get that amount from the diet. So I think it's in line with our dietary history and that's why these doses seem to be perfectly safe choline and omega-3s you mentioned choline and all, all of these you know talking about the b vitamins as it relates to brain health cognitive decline brain atrophy do we have a recommended dosage for choline and do we have a recommended dosage for omega-3s and maybe with the omega-3s we might need to parse out dha as a sort of a we might need to talk about epa and dha as sort of separate uh, in there yeah. in terms of its role in brain health the, the way I think about them is how they have these sort of complementary and combined roles in terms of how they function in the brain. So, so I mentioned earlier that if you have high omega-3s, but you have poor B vitamin status, you can't get your omega-3s where they want to go. So mm -hmm. the way that omega-3s work in the brain is they sit in the membrane of synapses, which is where neurons talk to each other. And they also sit in the membranes of mitochondria. DHA in particular, important, very important for mitochondrial function. For it to sit in the membrane, rather than just like be floating around as a fat, it's inserted into a phospholipid, which is what these membranes are made up of. So you have the fat itself, and then it's attached to some kind of phosphorylated head group that sits in the, sits in the membrane. And you don't need to know more biochemistry than that. But essentially, you have two main things. You have the fat itself, which say it's DHA, and then you have a head group which is made often of something like choline. So you need to have the choline for the DHA to attach to. There are other head groups that are important. So like serine, phosphatidylserine is an important head group. And there are some studies with sort of multi-nutrient supplements that uh, include fairly high doses of serine that have been associated with, with, with improved cognitive function. And that, that may be one of the reasons why as well. Serine is an, is an amino acid. Hmm. However, in order to attach your... DHA to your choline, you need methylation. So that's where B vitamins B become vitamins. important. And so all of these things stack up and they're all required in order for omega-3s to get into the point, the part of the brain that, that, that you want them to be. So I think a good target for most people for omega long-chain omega-3 intake is somewhere like one to three grams a day and a fairly even balance of uh, EPA and DHA. Often supplements have a lot more EPA than DHA. So just like, so if you're supplementing, just making sure you're getting like one, at least one gram of DHA a day on average. And you can, right, you, it doesn't have to be every day. So you can get this from seafood. And if you, so say you have a big 
plate full of salmon one day, what will happen is the omega-3s from that salmon, they'll get stored in your adipose tissue, and then they'll be used as a depot of omega-3s for the brain. So you don't need to eat this continuously. Your body is actually fairly good at regulating stores and access of, of omega-3s to, to the brain. But that, on average, somewhere like two to three grams a day. Choline is another interesting one because several people and, and like animal studies and some epidemiological studies in humans have suggested that a, a relative choline deficiency is, a, is maybe one of the reasons why we have so much fatty liver in, in the US nowadays because you need choline to help export fat from the liver. And there are lots of animal models that no matter how you induce fatty liver and it can be either with a genetic manipulation or with like a very high sugar diet, if you then give those animals enough choline, they can actually clear their fatty liver. And there are uh, now recommendations for choline, particularly in pregnant women, because choline is incredibly important for both the mother's health as well as for the brain, the developing brain of the fetus and the infant. And what I think one of the reasons why this is happening is because of the demonization of eggs, which will Prime, our primary source of choline. You can also get it from things like uh, the yellows, the yolks, the yellow, uh, the egg yeah, yolk. Yeah, yeah not yeah. none of this like or none of this boxes of egg whites thing. Mm. You have to eat the egg yolk. And if you're not eating eggs, or for whatever reason you don't you don't like eggs, then lesser thin is is a, is, a, is a good source of choline that you can get. It can either be made from soy or from sunflower. So some people like you can just get it as a powder and you can add a tablespoon to like a smoothie or something. So there are other other sources, but the primary source in the diet is eggs, which for various reasons, people are, are generally eating less of. But I It's the whole cholesterol thing. It's the whole cholesterol story that cholesterol is quote unquote bad for you and yeah. lots of cholesterol in an egg yolk and... Yeah. Lots of really great things in an egg yolk. So yeah. rec I definitely rec recommend eggs for those who, who can include them in, in their diet. And, you know, the equivalent of one or two eggs a day is probably going to be plenty of choline. If you're going to supplement, that's th two or three hundred milligrams a day of acetylcholine or CDP choline. Those are the same thing. They're just ones like the brand name. That's C-I-T-I. C-I-T-I. Yeah, yeah. acetylcholine, yeah. And then... You know, to kind of round that out, there are studies both after traumatic brain injury and in those with cognitive decline that show that supplementing with, with higher doses of choline improves some aspects of, of cognitive function. So then we're talking like 500 to 1,000 grams, milligrams a day. Five, oh, so 200 milligrams or 300 milligrams of acetylcholine and then 500 megs to a gram of choline in like a head injury yeah type well if, if you've had a, a very recent head injury i'd probably do two grams one to two grams uh mm -hmm. but for cognitive decline long term 500 to a thousand milligrams okay and then just because we're talking about supplements do you are there you know i mentioned thorn pure encapsulations there's an omega-3 that i'm trying right now i think it's pronounced puri puri i'm not i might be getting that wrong are there brands that you have found particularly useful do you use yourself you may want to just phone a friend or pass on this and we can if, if you want <laughs> no no that, that that's fine i'm happy to talk about supplement sources i i have no relationships with with any uh, supplement company currently um yeah. but you you make a good point and people have made good points that some cheap supplements particularly cheap fish oils i mean i don't know if they're going to be harmful but they're probably not going to be beneficial they can be high in heavy metals and like all the fats are oxidized and like 
So it's certainly not not providing any benefit. But higher quality supplements are, are definitely still worth trying, and there are you know randomized controlled trials where you give people omega three supplements and so say in depression and anxiety and that you know people with you know clinical say depression disorder and you see improvements in in symptoms with omega threes just like as long as B vitamin status is good you supplement with omega threes in a in a trial and you see improvements in cognitive function so supplementing has certainly been shown uh, t- to be able to have benefit I personally have used and I know a lot of people recommend Nordic Naturals. And I know that Momentus has has an omega three that that I believe is is pretty good. Other good companies are, in, include Thorn, you know, Pure Encapsulations. They they usually are third party tested. If you're worried about the supplement company, you can ask for a certificate of analysis. So they should have sent off the batch to make sure it's not got a bunch of heavy metals and other stuff in it. And if they can't send you that, then you probably shouldn't buy from them. But all good supplement companies will have that kind of thing. My Icelandic heritage has meant that I grew up with cod liver oil as part of the diet, like a, a spoonful of oil from the bottle from the fridge like every morning when I was a kid. So sometimes Icelandic cod liver oil is what I, I take. And well, I don't one, think- There's a company, in a bl- it's a blue bottle. I can't recall the name, but I have, the, it comes in like a chocolate flavor too. It's like a oh, cod. Really? There, it's Never a cod liver oil. It's amazing. I give it to my kids in the wintertime. I can't remember. I'll find it for the show notes. But there's in Iceland, like Lises, the main company, and then Drope is, is is another one that they where they've made they have this like cold pressed extra virgin cod liver oil capsules. And then I know some people like the Norwegian equivalent, which is Müller's Tran. You can you can get, but there's nothing magic. I don't think there's anything magic about cod liver oil. It's just that I'm Scandinavian and this is what we're used to. But all those other options are fine as well. You know, I have to say, I was in I was in Estonia in the summertime. So I'm Portuguese, so part Portuguese. So fish is a big part of our sardines. I mean, I think yeah. I was weaned on sardines. But uh-huh. I was in, we were in Estonia, and I just had the best, it, it was like salted, tr- I think was it trout? Or, mm-hmm. you know, there was like a big continental breakfast, and I just had all the fish. And it was like, you know, they had, <laughs> they had like the eggs and the bacon and the cereal and the yogurt and stuff. And I just went for all the fish. It was mm-hmm. incredible because it was right from... You know, right from the sea, it was yeah. just fantastic. So, shout out to all those northern countries that they do. There's a lot of things that sort of northern Europe and those northern European countries do really, really well. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking. We've been talking about muscle mass, lean muscle mass. You know, nutrition. I, I have, you know, I feel like, you know, in preparing for our conversation, I was like, gosh, this is such a silly question, but I, I just have to know the answer because I'm so curious. So we've, we've been talking about some of these ways that we can mitigate or let's say improve brain function, improve cognitive function. One of the things that I don't think I fully understand, which I would love, and this is why I'm so happy that you're here to help round out my understanding as well as my listeners, is why why does why do we have age-related cognitive decline in the, in the first place, I know that's like a silly question, but from an evolutionary perspective, doesn't it seem a bit off that, you know, the elders who have all of this lived experience and mm. teachings that they can pass on to the younger generations is lost? It just doesn't seem like it seems like it's a bit of an evolutionary mismatch for so many individuals as they're you know, getting older. And this is again, for my perimenopausal women, I hear this all the time. Like I have brain fog, I have consonant confusion. I have like the word is there, but I can't get it to my, Mm -hmm. I can't get the motor signal to my mouth to say it. It's almost like it's a bit of a mild TBI. 
so can you speak a little bit about why we actually experience this as humans in the, in the first place? It's a fantastic question. And it's something that I've grappled with a bit recently. And I've, I've written a, a paper about this and I'm currently writing more papers with a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Josh Turknet, who's a neurologist. And we have a, a, a podcast about, about the brain that we talk about this idea. Oh, um, I'll make sure to link to that too. Hmm. But, but before I get into that, actually, I was reminded as you were talking, um, particularly as you think about the elders and their, and their role in society and how you would want their brains to function so they can pass on like the, the oral history of your society. And I think historically and in indigenous cultures, that is still what happens. And in those cultures, you often see that the things that are associated with cognitive decline in Western cultures aren't risk factors in those cultures. And I think that that is part of what makes that that's part of what's protective. But there was a, a very nice study uh, at the Bolivian Chimene, which are a, a hunter-gatherer group. And there's also a related intermediate group. It's sort of like ha- and the halfway between, say, sort of like more hunter-gatherer society and Western society. They're kind of halfway between the two. And so they looked at three groups, the Bolivian Chimene, this sort of intermediate group, and then Westernized society. And what they found was, and this relates to what we were talking about earlier, what they found was that brain volume and energy and energy intake they were looking at and what what they found that particularly in the sort of traditional hunter-gatherer type society which is what is part of our communal evolutionary history say a thousand or two thousand years ago depending on on you know where your recent ancestors came from they found that the more energy intake the individuals had the bigger their brain volume and, and it actually helped to protect against the loss of brain volume as, as they got older. So eating enough was, was, was really important. But then, you know, when, when you look across societies, there's this U-shaped or inverse U-shaped curve. So then as energy intake increases even further, it becomes toxic and brain volume decreases again. So maybe one of the, one of the reasons why we see this broad decrease in cognitive function in modern, modern societies is generally as we get older, we become energy toxic, right? We have, we're, we're consuming more energy than we require. We know that the average person gains weight or body fat over time and they become less active. So your, the in portion of calories goes up and the out portion decreases. So I think part of it, uh, is that. And then that relates to broader health. So in general, our, our health really declines as we get older. And that's not a given. Obviously, we can't prevent aging entirely. But in general, the population, as they get older, they get more sedentary. Their, the quality of their food decreases. They get more stressed, more sleep deprived. And that certainly relates to some of the things that you mentioned. So when you're having issues with memory retrieval, like it's just on the tip of my tongue, like I know it's right there. That's often related to other lifestyle factors like problems with sleep and, and stress. And these are things that, you know, more broadly don't exist in, in those kinds of hunter-gatherer uh, societies in, in the same way certainly they they certainly have stresses but they're not the same kind of chronic stresses so i think some of it is related to lifestyle uh, and you know the deteriorating body composition more sedentary deteriorating health uh, over time which we can certainly combat with all the things that we've been talking about but to finally get to the point that i was going to make 
more broadly, I think the reason why, or a, a big part of the reason why our cognitive function declines over time is because we use our brains less over time. So when we think about muscle tissue and you want to get stronger, the most important thing is to apply some kind of training to that muscle. And it could be heart muscle if you want to get you know fitter for a marathon. It could be muscle tissue if you want to get stronger or, or build muscle tissue. The stimulus is the most important thing. And then after that, the muscle tissue you know, adapts and you get stronger, you get fitter over time. And if you had the perfect sleep and the perfect diet and everything else was great, but you never went to the gym, you're probably not going to get stronger, right? Um, and everything about the process of adaptation to a stimulus in the muscle tissue is essentially replicated in the brain. And most of that has been had to be looked at in in animal studies, but there are also sort of imaging studies and other things that have looked at this. And what it really says is that the, the amount and how we use our brains, the stimulus that we apply to our brains changes over time. And that seems to be a critical driving force. So in my day job, I run a lab that looks at ways to treat and optimize the development of the newborn brain. And when your brain is developing in the first place, for the first 16 to 20 something years of your life, depending on how many years of education you do. Essentially, your full time job is learning, right? Learning to talk, learning to walk, learning social interaction, learning maths or math, learning biochemistry, learning to drive. And during this time, cognitive function is essentially increasing. And it peaks sometime around when you finish formal education, whenever that is. And the longer you you, you spend in education, the higher sort of peak of cognitive function on average. And then you get a job and you do the same thing again and again and again. And in general, you specialize, right? As you become better at your job and you move up the ladder, you become more and more specialist. And that's important. Right? I want a surgeon who has done the same thing a million times because then, you know, all of, all of the cuts that she makes are the right one at the right time. She knows how to adapt to, to things when, when, when problems arise. But there's no longer this continuous new stimulus to the brain, right? This new skill development, you know, applying a new novel stimulus. All of that stops in most people as we get older. And if you look, if you sort of like plot this arbitrary amount of cognitive stimulus, like how, how much are we learning new skills? How much are we really challenging our brains? As we get older, that decreases, and that decreases in line with cog with broader cognitive function. So I think a big part of it is how are we using our brains as we get older, and as we stop stimulating them in the same way, you know, it's the same as not. You know, we no longer go to the gym and lift weights. We're gonna get weaker o over time, and the the biggest drop in cognitive function is when is when we retire. So yeah. when so even, even if you're doing the same thing every day, right, there's still a stimulus from work. The work that you do, the people you interact with, all these other things. When you remove that at retirement, most people, and not everybody, but most people don't replace that with other things that stimulate their brain in the same way. And that's when the greatest sort of rate of increased risk of, of dementia uh, occurs. So part of it, you know, the, to go back to your main question, Part of this change in cognitive function over time, I think, is going to be some baseline aging process that we can't we can't change. Right? We know the body systems slowly deteriorate over time. 
that we're like the scientific community is working on ways to reverse or prevent aging entirely. We can't do that yet. But a bigger part of it, I think, in terms of preventing significant cognitive decline is related to overall health and lifestyle, sleep, stress, physical activity, that kind of stuff. And then the final piece of that, if not the most important piece, is how are you actually challenging your brain so that you're providing that stimulus just like you would in the gym to make sure that you stay strong as you get older? So wonderfully said. And if I could boil it down, what I think you're saying is like use it or lose it, right? Like the function, like yeah. the function of your brain is going to be proportional to the demand that you put on it in the same exactly. way that your muscle size is going to be or your muscle strength or whatever is going to be proportional to the progressive overload or stimulus over time. Okay, so if we have individuals that are listening, they're in midlife, they're looking to sort of, you know, attenuate or, or at least reduce, slow down that cognitive decline. What are some examples? So I'll, I'll give you an example that I'm doing and you can tell me whether or not this is sufficient or not. So I am a wannabe polyglot. <laughs> so I want to be able to speak several languages, Arabic. I mean, I can understand all the swear words, but you know, can't, not quite, can't read the language yet, but which is uh, funnily enough, I don't know why that's always the first thing that you ever learn when you're learning a new language is all the cuss words. But anyway, so Arabic, I want to be able to speak Portuguese, Spanish, Italian. I already speak English. You know, someone might argue, maybe not, but you know, English and French. Is a skill like that where I can, like with French, you know, I like to joke, like, part of being fluent in French is like not, per, you know, not pronouncing 40% of the word, you know, unless, uh-huh. it's, unless it's in the feminine form, then you produce, pronounce the whole thing is so I get a lot, a lot of times I'll get frustrated with the, let's say the, the lack of continuity of syntax or grammar rules or whatever is something like learning a language, or maybe there's other better examples. Are those things going to be neuroprotective or are there other things, you know, are there like brain training? I, I remember who was I speaking to, they were telling me about an app i think it was called dual and back where it's oh, dual and back yeah it's the like the end back it's it's like a working memory test yeah yeah so are there are the are, are those things that we need to be thinking about as we age like you know we've all my my ex father-in-law who i love and still speak to like whenever i speak to my ex about him you know he we say like he should never retire because he gets so much pleasure from his work he's 75 he owns like a window like a construction business and he gets a lot of satisfaction going in and like he's not working the same way now in his 70s as he was maybe in his 40s or 50s but he still has purpose he still goes in there every single day you know interacts with the workers sees the production line all the things what are some things that you know is it like do we never retire i mean that's not an option for <laughs> like i never want to retire i love my work but at some point you know i'm going to be 80 i you know i want to want to help with my hopefully if i have grandkids i want to spend more time with them and all that stuff what are some of the what are some of the activities that we can be thinking about now i mean i'm in my 40s so 40s 50s 60s that are going to be cognitive that are going to that are going to be neuroprotective for us i think the there's no like one one skill or that that is going to be the most protective so as with everything it's the same with exercise right pick one that you're going to enjoy and you want to keep getting getting better at but it should also be something that you're bad at i think that has to be part of like i think one of the 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 things i hope people take away is that they regularly engage in improving their their skills or their abilities in something that they're bad at because adults in general are really bad at being bad at things like we hate we when hate it. See, we yeah. hate it mm. when somebody sees us fail or, or like not 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 get it right. 
like it just makes us all sort of like cringe. It's it, it's terrible. Whereas kids, and again, it's part of the learning process. They don't care, right? They don't care if they fall over. They don't care if they pronounce things incorrectly, right? They're just they're constantly pushing the boundaries of what they're currently capable of, and that, that's the most important thing. We can you know look at individual or different types of of skills. So languages is a brilliant one, and there are studies that look at people who are either they were brought up bilingual, and they seem to be get this protection of areas of the brain that they're associated with, with cognitive decline, probably because of that additional stimulus. There are also studies teaching adults languages later in life, and that seems to be associated with improved broad cognitive bro- cognitive function. So language is a great one. Music and musical instruments, mm-hmm. also uh, a, a great uh, example. There's what, One of my favorite studies used this MRI-based machine learning algorithm called BrainAge, which has been used in, I think, dozens, if not hundreds of studies at this point, where they basically originally took hundreds of MRI scans and they just said to the algorithm, this is an MRI scan, this is how old this person is. So then you can give it a new scan and say, how old does this brain look? And they did this in musicians and compared them to sort of age-matched controls. And these these individuals were slightly younger. They were in their sort of 30s, 20s to 30s. But what they saw was that professional musicians had younger-looking brains than the sort of average average person of their age. But amateur musicians had even younger looking brains than professional musicians. And the the hypothesis raised by the authors was that for amateurs, it's harder, right? Once you're a professional, you're an expert. It's no longer the same stimulus. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So this is kind of the idea of constantly getting better at something that you're bad at is, is, is kind of the key takeaway. And music is a great one. Language is a great one. I think coordination and coordination-based movements and there have been studies with like gymnastics jump rope yoga or pilates dancing i mentioned dancing all of those seem to have these additional benefits any particular type of dance like waltz salsa i I, do you know i can't remember the type that they did in the studies but i can't think of any reason why one would be better than another like which whatever whatever you whatever you enjoy rhythm what's next and what's the partner doing and yeah yeah and so and so that's the 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 partner bit i think is one of all of the one all of the activities we mentioned so far i think there's this potential additional magic because of the social component of it right in order to really express the language you've learned you probably need another person to to converse with right just like if you if you really want to express yourself musically you might want to do that as part of a band or a group and dancing again you know fun by yourself more fun with other people and especially if it's like a partner-based dance there's this anticipation and like you're constantly reacting to the other person and ball sports or badminton or something it's the same right you're constantly having to react to the other person as well as there's another person there and the social component is probably a big part of it the you also asked about brain training and some of these things i think can provide some of these benefits so there's a a platform called brain hq which probably has the most evidence to support it it was developed by uh, professor mike merzenich who is one of the original people who sort of learned about the process of learning like he he was one of the original researchers that kind of described how the brain how the brain learns in the first place and they have studies showing that their brain training which is all online you know sort of on a, on a computer base does have some carryover to like real world examples like things you'd care about like being able to remember where your keys are and executive function and decision making and stuff like that so mm-hmm. i think there's a place for, for 
for brain training. Just like there's a place for video games, there are some studies in adults showing that complex 3D video games are associated with improvements in cognitive function. So that's great. But, you know, those other things are, are good as well. And the, the way that I think about it is that if you're really challenging your brain in a, in a way that's going to drive adaptation, it's kind of similar to going to the gym, right? You're probably going to go for 60 to 90 minutes, you know, or shorter is fine to like some people like 30 or 45 minutes, but somewhere like 30 minutes to 90 minutes, say, and you're going to push to the edge of your current capabilities, right? You're going to say, do a set of deadlifts to failure, and then you're going to rest in between. And that's what we see about these best, these sort of optimal kind of learning periods. They're 30 to 90 minutes. You spend some time kind of pushing the edges of your current capabilities, and then maybe there's some rest periods in between. And you might think about a language class where you show up and everybody kind of like starts to interact. You Maybe you learn some new grammar and then you have a little bit of a break and then you have like some conversation at the end, right? So it's kind of structured in that, in that same way. So those are the kinds of things that you're doing. Whatever it is, it's difficult. You can probably only do it for, you know, one to two hours maximum with maybe a few breaks in between. And you're kind of pushing the boundaries of what you're, what you're currently capable of and you slowly get better over time. That's that's kind of how I think about it. And the difficulty is that because it's stemming from the frustration of not being able to do it. So you have like more attention and focus on the task to be able to sort of, you know, supersede or get over the hump, let's say, is it is this related anyway to the dopaminergic system? I know Andrew Huberman's talked a little bit about this, but would love for you to expand on that. Yeah. So it certainly seems to be like the the frustration and failure of like getting to like, the edge of your current capabilities is probably an important trigger for learning. Just like focus is really important for you know, learning or, or making a new memory, right? You need to tell your brain that this is important. And the neurotransmitters involved in that, yeah, of course, include dopamine, but also things like noradrenaline and some of these things that are released when we get frustrated or stressed. Some of those create that that the environment necessary for neuroplasticity and adaptation so some element of of failure uh seems to be beneficial obviously you can it can push you too far and then your ability to perform dramatically decreases so there's a you know there's there's, there's certainly a, a ceiling effect but some element there is it does seem to be does seem to be, does seem to be beneficial in terms of how we how we then drive that adaptation but the the other part in terms of how long can we do it for you do if you're if you're using a certain part of the brain over time you will sort of get a buildup of certain metabolites right these are the things that drive sleep and that will probably eventually lead to some decrease in performance as well so that's where that like optimal period of of real sort of focused learning is probably going to be somewhere in that range I think that's wonderful parenting advice as well, just as an aside, because, you know, my kids are in sport and sometimes they're frustrated. Maybe they've lost a game, you know, they're, so they're soccer players. So one of the things that we talk about at the dinner table, we, we do a little gratitude practice, but we also, it's like, where'd you fail today? How did you mm -hmm. fail? And what, what's the lessons and the learnings from that? And I think, you know, I've had, you know, other experts that talk about certain personalities and their propensity to lean into failure versus mm -hmm. not. So you mentioned like children, you know, when they're young enough, they don't have that filter. 
Yeah. Um, uh, I think, you know, the age my children are at now, at least they're, they're much more aware of their peer group. You know, they're 11 and 13. So they're very aware of sort of what's going around, who's doing what, who's wearing what, who's saying what. And one of the things that I'm trying to bake into their somewhere into their DNA somewhere is that this idea of failure is actually one of the best tools for accelerating your skill set. So I have yeah. things that I want, like I want them doing plyometric stuff at home to increase like the, you know, the bouncing and the speed and the explosive power that they need to, you know, be able to withstand, you know, some of the sprints and stuff in soccer, but they have to, they have to be okay with sucking yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, which is an easy thing to say, <laughs> Oh, it's okay. You're not going to be great at it. But when you have, kids that take after their mom in some respect who also doesn't like to be wrong yeah it can it can be a bit of a hurdle but i like the way that you explained it in terms of sort of reaching that sort of cognitive capacity or like brushing up against that edge let's say and then backing off taking a rest you know letting the sort of neuroplasticity or whatever you know sort of bake up in in the background and then come back to it yeah that's that's awesome Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about head injuries. This is something I saw a lot in practice. I think that, you know, what it, maybe it was my physical location of my practice or whatever, but just a lot of lawyers, like I was saying to you, can you explain what a concussion is? So just, you know, kind of 30,000 foot view from the trees. What, what is a concussion? Do you know what? There isn't a formal definition of concussion. Like there is no agreement as to what a concussion is. When, so I I, I do some a animal and uh, applied uh, sort of clinical work in in concussion and traumatic brain injury, both before you know before the impact happens. You know, what can we do to try and increase resilience, and then you know are there ways to mitigate the effect of the impact? And in that in that world, I work with a, a neurosurgeon who's definition is probably about as as good as i think we can make it which is that a concussion is any and this is impact specific because actually blast type injuries is relevant to so the military have a, a different mechanism of, of causing damage long term so an impact so a, so a traumatic brain injury it's an impact that causes irreversible changes in the function of at least one neuron in the brain now the, the problem is that you can't measure the function of one neuron in the brain. So in general, when we think about concussions, you've probably affected large networks or several, several neurons because that's when we can actually detect an effect. And that can either be, you know, with, with functional things like an EEG, which some people do, or, you know, measuring a biomarker or, you know, you've had frank lo loss of con consciousness or changes in your, in your cognitive function. Um, but essentially, a concussion is is anything that results in some kind of change to the function of, of neurons um, in, in the brain. And you said irreversible. So that definition is irreversible, and by irreversible, you mean it's going. It, you know, it creates a, a, a phenotype or symptoms or some changes. That doesn't mean that you can't recover from it. It doesn't mean that the brain can't repair it. But it means that in that window of time you have created a detectable change in the function of a neuron. Of course, I, I think you can have s very severe, significant brain injuries that you're never going to recover from fully. But, but the brain is also very plastic and adaptable and can, you know, you know, initiate parts of repair. So we would hope that one day we'll get to a point where most concussions can be, you know, 
generally fully recovered from. And what are some of the, so again, understand that there's a gradient here, uh, that the, they can be mild, moderate, and marked. What are some of the symptoms of a concussion? It really, it really depends on the mechanism and, and the individual. So the, if when you're talking about terminology, a concussion is thought to be the same as a mild traumatic brain injury, and then they become, they become more severe when you have like loss of consciousness, or maybe if you have like direct injury to the, the skull or fractures or, or, or things like that, and you have significant bleeding in the brain and that those, those are more severe, but concussions, the skull remains intact. Um, but you, you have some kind of, of change to, to function. The, the definition of a concussion that includes any change to neurological function, even if it's not detectable, is potentially important because we know that exposures over time, right, very small, small, you know, minor, very, if we can call them minor, but, you know, this we can get this accumulation of damage over time, right? So say if you play in the NFL or you play uh, professional soccer, there's certainly now, or rugby, there's certainly now evidence that even if you never had a really bad single concussion that the way you know you were you were knocked out and you had to be carried off the field or anything like that there still seems to be this accumulation of of damage from these sort of much smaller uh impacts yeah you've and, you gone know, up for enough headers in the soccer yeah, game enough headers time. enough snaps like yeah. that those things are probably accumulating over time so that's where i think that that you're causing an effect even if you can't always detect it we have to we have to bear that in mind as well but where you might see symptoms, particularly if you had a, a, a more significant concussion early on, they can be changes in balance, right? So issues with the vestibular system, they can be changes in memory. There's often, there can be changes in mood. There's often problems with sleep, but it, you know, it can be issues with, say, working or short-term memory. But, but often those are very different from person to person. And in general, they, they settle within a few weeks, but can sometimes go on for much longer than that. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot after hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea chocolate medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Yeah, we had, uh, I had um, a friend on the podcast, I guess it was a couple months ago, who was talking about his 
experience. I uh, had a quite a traumatic impact. I believe he was riding his bike and then this woman sort of darted out between, uh, I think it was car, like maybe two parked cars. He didn't see him. He didn't see her. They had this big impact and he wasn't the same for several years. And one of the things that he talked about, and I don't think he would mind me saying this because he said it on the show, was that he was really irritable. So he would see his kids sort of playing. And before he was like the kind of guy, like the dad that would be down on the floor, rough and tumbling with his kids and, you know, loving them up and all of that. And he, the only thing he could do was like leave the room because the noise that they were making was so intolerable that it was, and he, you know, he was a lawyer at the time and he couldn't, you know, he would have to, you know, and again, there's the lawyer, there's the lawyer, actually, he was a prosecutor and couldn't, you know, figure out what he was saying in court. He was petrified that the next, he was not going to remember part of his, you know, part of his argument, I guess, in, in court and had to go on sabbatical and was just incredibly traumatic for him and his family. And of course, this is, a, you know, this concussion happened about 10 years ago now, where we are in, in, in at the end of 2023, it happened, I think, for him in like 2013. But he mm. talks about this idea of like two or three years, he wasn't the same. Mm. And he would wake up every day to see all of the deficits that he didn't even know that he had that were now present. And he, like you and I, very big into exercise and fitness, and all he could do was walk. Mm. And there was this, he talked about on the show, this like little group of ladies that would kind of like these like, you know, 65, 70, you know, year old ladies that would go walking around his block and they were lapping him, you know, and all he could do, this is the guy that was like deadlifting, like you might be doing, like I might be doing. And all he could do was walk. And he had sort of had to come all the way back, like cut out all of the exercise, all because those things would give him raging headaches. He couldn't yeah. handle the hormetic stressor of the exercise. So all he could do was walk. So maybe that's an example of maybe neurons being activated, maybe more limbic system activation, or maybe the prefrontal cortex was more offline. I don't know exactly where he hit his head, but you know, that inhibitory process of like the PFC sort of like inhibiting sort of these lower brain centers. He talks about like being like more ragey, like kind of more mm -hmm. of a ragey, angry person where, you know, if you talk to him now, he's like a lovely individual. And this is, this is one of the issues with concussion and TBI research is that the mechanism of injury for each person is, is different. The The areas of the, the brain that are affected can be different and the symptoms can be very different. So then when you're trying to look at interventions, like how do you create a homogeneous group of people so that you can say, well, th these people who injured their brain like this, you know, affecting these regions of the brain, we're giving them this intervention. It, it's really hard to do that if, if not impossible. So I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that's kind of slowed down progression of, of therapies for concussions is is how different it can affect different people but it's, it's worth bearing in mind that early return to physical activity even if it's just walking is one of the best uh, interventions for for a concussion so the the trials generally what they do is they figure out what level of activity um causes symptoms and then they do just a little bit less than that say you know two to four times times a week and and that seems to accelerate accelerate recovery, but making sure you're not you know, you're not making the symptoms any worse, but just enough. It's, it, I guess it's kind of like like skill learning again, right? You're doing just enough that you're you're not sort of pushing past what you're currently capable of, but making sure that you're doing enough. That, that that's one intervention that that certainly seems to be beneficial. Um, research on 
I'm, I don't know if there, I haven't seen anything. So I'm asking you the expert on terms of women and concussion. And I asked this because it was, you know, my very kind of loose clinical observation that if a woman who was still menstruating, so she still had her fertility cycle, if she was injured, she sustained a head injury, let's say in the follicular phase of her cycle, usually, at least in my practice, had a better prognosis, better outcome. And again, there's there's so much of, it's so much of a heterogeneous group, as you were saying, it's hard mm-hmm. to, but my observation was if someone had that sort of full amount of progesterone coming to them in like the next two weeks, let's say, I always sort of loosely observed that they did better than an individual woman who, let's say, was hit in her luteal phase where maybe part of the, she wasn't exposed to that sort of two weeks or so of, of, of progesterone. Is there any data on that or is that just at this point a clinical observation? I would be surprised if nobody had tried to explore this, but I have not seen studies that have looked at this, though there may be something out there. Biologically, it is certainly plausible because we know that both estrogen and progesterone are neuroprotective. And there are several trials where they've tried to give progesterone in particular as a, as a neuroprotective agent after, after you know, different kinds of brain injury. I don't believe any of them have been particularly successful, but certainly in animal models, progesterone is, is quite neuroprotective. And, you know, they've, they've given it and it, it was the same in, uh, in COVID, there were some trials that they're giving men estrogen because women seem to have a better survival after severe COVID outcomes. They thought it was maybe a, a, some hormones were, were were coming into play. And there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in the brain injury fields and in both basic science and in 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 humans that suggest that there there are sex effects. And it's not always that one sex does better than the other. They're just like different depending on the type sure. of injury and and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So. Certainly biologically plausible, but I don't know if anybody's really, really explored that in depth. That's fair. And so what do we think? So for, is there any general acute management? So someone has had a concussion. Do we think about, is there basics that we want to be thinking about for acute management, for chronic management? Yeah. So for the acute management, I I, I generally think about physiology or, or like managing physiology as much as possible so when you get an injury a a few things a few things happen and it's the same across most injuries but the the most important thing that or one of the most important things is is temperature management i did my phd in temperature after brain injury and there's the in general in animal models if you cool down the brain after any kind of brain injury it's very neuroprotective and what you're doing is you're basically decreasing the deficit between energetic requirements and and energetic capacity. So when you injure the brain, your mitochondria become damaged and they're no longer able to produce enough energy to match the requirements of the cell. And then that can make the the injury worse and that can lead to cell death. You said in animal models. This is in animal models. So like it it gets a lot more nuanced than this, but this is kind of the broad theory. Like that's, that's what you're doing. Um, and it's and it's very protective. And there is one brain injury for which uh, cooling is the standard of care. It's in term babies who have some kind of event around birth and get a brain injury associated with that. They are cooled down for three days to thirty three point five degrees average, you know, average Celsius thirty three to thirty four. Human babies. Human babies. Yeah, okay. it's the okay. standard of care. Okay. In every other type of brain injury where this has been examined, hypothermia is not neuroprotective. It's been tested in after out of hospital cardiac arrest, stroke, and several studies with traumatic brain injury. And 
in the animal studies it works in humans it does not there are people out there currently selling cooling caps and cooling devices for, for things after concussion and they get mad when i say this but there is no evidence that these work and but the there's a nuance to it as well the the reason or one of the reasons why cooling is beneficial is it's not just creating hypothermia it's preventing fevers so right. if you compare cooling to what they call targeted temperature management which basically means just preventing fever you keep the temperature in the normal range they have the same effect but if you in the control group if you let them have fevers like they normally would hypothermia is beneficial so the main benefit of cooling is preventing fever and i told you that whole long complex story just to say that you should try and prevent fevers after after a concussion it's like an antipyretic um, like you like an like antipyretic so like paracetamol and things like that or Tylenol, sorry, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're talking North American. Yeah. So ma making, you know, making sure that you're preventing fever as much more and just like preventing the patient from getting too hot. That's important because concussions often happen in heat-stressed environments, right? Say on, on a sports field or whatever, you're already hot. So just making sure that the whoever it is is not overheated and then as, as the inflammatory response happens in the, in the hours afterwards, trying to keep their, you know, minimize fevers as much as possible with with drugs if needed. So um, cold plunges, these are not like cold plunges and these ice caps. This is the ice caps and the grip strength people. They're in the same category, right? <laughs> the, 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 the thing with the ice caps is there's no way. But how you're, are you cooling the brain with that? Exactly. Right? So, so, what you, so what they do is they measure the temperature of the scalp and they say, well, the scalp is colder, therefore the brain is colder. That's, that's just not true because the temperature is coming from core temperature and it's coming up through the arteries into the brain. And if you're cooling from the outside on a cap, you're, you're making no difference there. Right. So, I've, you know, th there, are, there are some potential uses of, say, ice baths or ice vests in this population. And that's as they return to exercise. So I already said that physical activity is one of the best ways, you know, early physical activity to tolerance is one of the best ways to help recover from an injury. But when you exercise, you heat up. Right, so, right. you know, there's certainly a case for cooling vests or pre-cooling, you know, you know, some cold water immersion before exercise. We know that that helps decrease core temperature and minimizes temperature increases during exercise. I think that can be helpful, particularly if a person is at risk of getting too hot in the week or two after their concussion when they start to exercise. So, again, the, the main thing, you know, preventing, preventing fevers or preventing getting, getting too hot in that in that early recovery period and that early recovery period is the first week is that yeah it's you the put first first couple first couple of weeks the the real the real danger period is the is like the first couple of days um like 72 I, hours is where yeah, you really want to make sure exactly. there's no fever right? yeah, yeah exactly and then after that as you you know hopefully within two or three days you're able to do some light physical activity that's when you you, you might consider other things just to prevent you just make sure you don't get too hot when you when you start to exercise and any research on palm cooling or just like it's whole body temperature that we're talking about? Yeah, because you, it, it's really so. So there are some studies on palm cooling and exercise performance, but it's not the same thing. You really want the brain to not get hot and right. the, the cooling the palm isn't going to do too much. And that's much. where the cold plunge yeah. might work because you're going to be like if you're fully immersed and then the neck. Well, the cold plunge will decrease your whole core, your whole body core temperature mm -hmm. and then and then as you exercise afterwards, you probably have to get out of the cold plunge to exercise, then it will take longer for your for your temperature to increase when you exercise. 
So okay. there's it's kind of some potential benefit there. The other the other major thing of so there are there are three, but so the second is is blood sugar control. And again, in animal studies and in human studies, those with poor blood sugar control, so say you induce diabetes or pre-diabetes-ish in an animal model or in individuals who have poor blood sugar regulation at the time of a, of a traumatic brain injury, they tend to have worse outcomes. This is important because in general, even in athletes, let's just say if this is the risk population, but it you know, could be in lawyers if, if they're getting their heads knocked a bunch, even in those populations who you might think are quite healthy, they can still have poor blood sugar control. So there was a, a study that looked at division one and high school football players and even those in athletic positions, so like quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, a third of them, or nearly a third of them, had pre-diabetic level blood sugar levels in healthy young athletes. Of course, you then look at linemen, and the 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 rate of pre-diabetes was even higher. In they've seen similar things in rugby players, they are in say uh, martial artists, particularly those in the heavyweight categories. Uh, at the international level, they have very high rates of uh, fatty liver and metabolic syndrome. So optimizing your uh, blood sugar uh, control and your overall metabolic health before an impact occurs is important. And then also you know, <clears throat> improving or managing blood sugar control afterwards is, is going to be important as well. There are large randomized control studies of this in concussions, uh, but certainly in traumatic brain injuries that require ICU treatment, they know that blood sugar control is very important. And as you as you have an injury, you have this big inflammatory response that makes blood sugar worse, um, which is which is normal. It's part of like immune normal immune function. Uh, but preventing really big swings in blood sugar will probably be helpful. So, you know, as you get carted off the field after your concussion, don't slam the Powerade. You know, just uh, I think moving away from refined carbohydrates or large carbohydrate boluses, particularly in those first few days is going to be helpful as well. What about ketone um, bodies? Would you, because even just thinking about the Krebs cycle, when we're using glucose, there's more ROS, there's more reactive oxygen species that are sort of spun off as a result of using glucose for ATP production. Would you consider ketone bodies or ketone esters or salts as a, as a possible replacement or sort of band-aid? Yeah. It's a question that I don't have a, a good answer to yet. And actually I'm um, part of some studies where where we're looking at this the again the biologic plausibility is is great and there's good animal data as you as you sort of have some whole body inflammatory responses you would get from a concussion or as you become insulin resistant we know that ketones can bypass some of the issues with blood sugar uptake to the brain that occur in that setting there are no good studies in humans that say that after a concussion ketones improve recovery but there is good biologic plausibility so so i i don't you know some people so the trials are happening right now i don't have a good answer i could tell you that if i got a concussion i would do that but i don't i don't have good evidence to say that it would be beneficial but i i do think that i would decrease carbohydrate intake particularly refined carbohydrates in, intake that's going to cause large swings in blood sugar so i think ketones are very promising but the evidence isn't quite there yet I hear a lot about, so I'm in, I'm in Canada and hyperbaric oxygen therapy here is all but outlawed, but I know that it's available in the States. It's part of actually our, you know, when we 
you know, renew every year with the, with the governing body. It's like, we also have to say we are not providing HBOT to, we have Mm -hmm. no, you know, so I'm not exact, I'm not entirely sure why I don't, and maybe I just don't know enough about hyperbaric oxygen therapy to, to understand why our governing bodies have sort of taken that position. But is that, that's also something that I see in the States more often, you know, more, more commonly, certainly than, than in Canada where I am. Is that a, a, a helpful treatment of, you know, maybe, maybe not necessarily in the acute stage, but maybe chronically, or maybe in the acute stage, is that something that we want to be thinking about? Yeah, it's it, it's another one that I, I I probably would put up there with with ketones, although maybe some of the re- research is a little bit more a more advanced stage. The a, a lot of the the research on say HBOT and chronic um, concussion or traumatic brain injury symptoms is is like uncontrolled case series. So like you follow right the 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 it's a clinic and they have these patients and they're like, hey, we had these patients and we treated them. Uh, with HBOT for six months and they got better. And you don't know whether they would have gotten better anyway, which generally is is the trajectory of, of most of most injuries. There are some small studies that suggest that HBOT probably one and a half to two atmospheres for say 60 minute sessions and, and probably over several weeks or months can improve you know, and these are placebo controlled can improve some of the sim- symptoms of, of concussion. But again, it, it's very early days. I would say that from talking to some researchers in this area and you know, some of the underlying biology as well as some animal studies would suggest that immediately after a concussion is probably not a good idea and it may even make the injury worse. But once you get into the sort of subacute period, like after a week or two, then there's maybe some benefit. But again, not a bunch of really high quality studies to support that. So, you know, it's so say if I got a concussion, it's probably not something that I would do unless I had chronic symptoms for a very long period of time. Then it's something that I might I might consider, but certainly not in the in the early in the early phases. Definitely not in the first few days. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. I sort of feel maybe I sort of feel like it's like the grip strength and the cooling cap thing. It's like, I don't really know if this is doing anything. I mean, it it potentially could be, as you said, and just the literature is not there. I just sort of have a bit of a hairy eyeball. I'm like, I don't know about that. And and then just finally with supplements. So we've talked about supplements already. We talked about choline. We talked about vitamin D status. We talked about omega-3s. We talked about B. Would Would you just, all of those that we were talking about, would you just increase their dosage if someone had a a TBI that they were dealing with, like you would, you'd still make sure that we were getting all of those Would the dosage change mm. if at all. Uh, so, so one thing, but before we get to that, I, w- I would just say that the, the other major, major thing to try and improve as much as possible after concussion is, is sleep and sleep can right. become, uh, is, is a big, is a big issue. And so obviously all the, the usual rules, um, apply, but, um, you know, melatonin like melatonin release can be affected by concussion so like mm. melatonin supplementation may be indicated it's may you know if you're having real issues with sleep then some medications may be beneficial there's a uh, trazodone is the one um sort of hypnotic that doesn't affect sleep structure or sleep architecture so some of the other ones like zolpidem zoclone ambien would definitely avoid uh but if you really need 
um, something to help you sleep, then trazodone is an option. But obviously, discuss this with with your doctor if it's actually needed. So optimizing sleep or as much as possible is going to be really important for recovery. Then and not reading uh, and not reading. But, this is like my lawyers again. My lawyers always want to go back to reading their briefs. It's like the more you read, the more headaches you're going to have. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> well, do, I guess doing anything to tolerance is fine. So if you if you're able to read and it doesn't cause headaches, then you know, fine. It's just like physical activity, but don't sure. do it if it's cause if it's causing symptoms. That's probably another major thing. Like whatever you're doing, if it starts to make your symptoms worse, then you're probably doing a bit too much, and I would yeah. back back off a bit. Yeah. So supplements after concussions, there's less evidence for. So there's there's some nice animal evidence and some good biologic plausibility for for creatine before concussions occur and choline also there there was a study that looked at high school footballers who football players so american football and over a season they looked at creatine and uh, choline levels in the brain using an mri scan particularly in the motor cortex and they found that with the more impacts that these players had the more those tended to decrease creatine and choline in the brain and one of this, one of the ideas of this second impact syndrome, which is that the first concussion doesn't have much of an effect, but then the second concussion that happens in a short period of time is much, much worse than expected. One of the reasons may be depletion of creatine and or choline in the brain because of the first concussion. And then that exacerbates the second one. So creatine after a concussion, it, it can be beneficial because it can help offset issues with sleep. It can directly support cognitive function. I don't know if it's directly neuroprotective, but it can support cognitive functions. But also, if you're at risk of another concussion, I think it's that's going to be beneficial. So, so yeah, I would consider a loading dose of, of creatine after a concussion. Choline, we already talked about one to two grams a day. There's some evidence improving neuropsychological outcomes. Omega three fatty acids again before and after. I would I would increase I would increase the dose of omega threes. And again. Not a ton of really good trials. That you know, a lot of these are being run right now, but I think there's good plausibility and and they're very safe. So it's kind of like low risk with high with high potential benefit. There's a couple of studies. One in a more chronic TBI symptoms using an extract of Boswellia that seemed to improve improve cognitive function, and then some some other general things I might think about. Magnesium it can be neuroprotective, but also can can help with sleep. Things like that. Those those are probably the the major ones. And uh, something that I'm a big fan of again has some some nice studies across the range of animal work as well as human studies in terms of supporting cognitive function, and has some interesting like biochemical effects. So, like the 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 cellular level is uh, blueberry anthocyanins. So part of my personal concussion re- recovery protocol is two cups of wild frozen blueberries a day because the anthocyanins seem to do cool things. And even if they don't do what we think they might do they're still tasty berries so probably not you know probably not a bad thing to try at the at the worst it's going to be neutral <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah exactly. and you know i i wanted to spend a little bit i'm so happy that you afforded us this extra time to talk about trauma because of the you know head trauma because the reality is is we're all susceptible to it right mm-hmm. you could get into a car crash you could be walking down the street someone i don't know you you know my my child has gone bike riding and has fallen over you know paul for example the example i was giving you 
before who was on the show riding his bike, someone sort of popped out, you know, and, and whacked him. Like we're all, you could fall downstairs and hit your head in the morning if the lights are not on. Like we're all susceptible to these things. And so I think that this is a really valuable discussion at, just as a prophylactic. Like if we just think about if there's one takeaway, it's like, Make sure you're taking some creatine every day. Make sure that you're yeah. getting enough choline, have some eggs, all of that. Yeah. And some of this, you know, some of the, some of the other uh, tentacles of our conversation, I think are going to be incredibly valuable as well. And I think we have to have you back on when some of your research is <laughs> published next year. So I look forward to, to hearing more about that as well. This has just been a delight. Thank you. Like, this has just been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with it and your expertise, your focus, I think that this is going to be, as I mentioned, so valuable to to my audience. Great. I, I really appreciate it. Really, really enjoyed uh, this as well. Um, hopefully some useful takeaways, uh, but no, really appreciated uh, your time and having me on your show as well. Thank you. And if people want to find you, participate in any of your research, anything like that, where can they find you online? Instagram is probably where I'm most active, although it's not super active but when when things come up like podcasts i try and share reels and that kind of stuff so at right. dr tommy wood on instagram and then i do have a website where some of this stuff goes as well and i also have like my cv so if you want to see all the papers that i published that's drtommywood.com and my podcast with uh, josh is better the better brain fitness podcast and it's a question and answer style so you can submit either uh, recorded or written questions and and we'll try and answer the questions that we think other people would benefit from the answers. Uh, so if anything that I've said today has raised some questions, please come over there and we'll try it. We'll try and answer them. Amazing. I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes. Thank you so much, Doc. This has been just a, a dream. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.